This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me. This is episode number five for November 2011. Our topic for this episode is the film Alps by the Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos. This episode should be a spoiler-free discussion, so feel free to jump right in. So, Ken, we're talking about the film Alps, uh, which has been making the festival circuit. Um, what is it about? First off, before we start, let me give a quick hello to our AFI listeners. Thanks all for joining us. Alps is a allegorical comedy drama about a fictional organization that takes on the title Alps or calls itself Alps that provides a unique service to uh, grieving people. They will basically, for a fee, come in and emulate someone in your life who has died and assist the grieving process or help you get closure. Uh, Perhaps you had Uh, a final discussion or some final things you wanted to say to a loved one. Uh, Perhaps you're not quite ready for their presence to be gone in your life. And so they will become uh, sort of paid actor surrogates who will take on the role of loved ones who have been departed for your life. That's the basic premise or the outline of the film. I don't want to get into too many of the complications for spoiler territory, but it's basically about the people who hire this organization Uh, how the organization prepares to take on these particular assignments. And I think the central meaning of the film lies behind, lies in how we think about what it is that that they're doing. Yes, and one of the little phrases that comes up early in the film as they're kind of discussing their, their work is there's this idea that death can be a new and better beginning, or that the end can be a better beginning. So that ostensibly the organization is helping people move on, move forward, um, and and start anew. Yeah, although I'm not entirely sure whether that's meant to be taken seriously or whether that's an example of a, a sort of rhetorical justification. Because on the one hand, uh, there's the implication in that language like what we're doing is a service and uh it's meaningful and why would anyone look down on it but then there is also uh, a clear clandestine nature of this at one point the leader of the organization says that you know no one should reveal what we do they take on a, a a cryptic name alps for themselves they all refer to themselves in code names uh named after the various uh mountains So on the one hand, out of one side of the mouth, you're getting this notion that uh, we're providing a service that seems new and reasonable. But on the other hand, there are elements of secretness that 
makes it clear that you know that's not entirely all that they think that they're doing or how people will respond to them kind of a blending of fight club and reservoir dogs yeah i actually I, that's funny i was thinking about reservoir dogs with all the you know uh just as there's humor in reservoir dogs with the i don't want to be mr brown or i don't want to be mr pink uh certainly these uh participants have arguments over which which mountains uh that they can get named after and you know talking about the name of the organization perhaps it's a good this is a good in to, to talking about the scene where they, they well, they don't, the group doesn't choose the name, but the leader of the group comes in and announces, here is our name. Right. And certainly one of the reasons that he gives is, as you say, that it, the name does not reveal anything about the, what they do. And the second reason he gives is that he thinks of it symbolically. As he explains it, they are an organization that provides these replacements for people, and he thinks of the Alps as a mountain range that, on the one hand, can stand in for any other mountain range, but that no other mountain range can stand in for it. And he provides this explanation. Everybody nods their head and says, yes, that's wonderful, and we're left to think about it. Yeah, well, one of the things that certainly I was thinking about is one whether that was true about the mountains yes. uh, you know there's that <laughs> weird sort of sense in in terms of like if we took away mount rushmore or mount mckinley and put the matterhorn in its place would no one really notice and i think that's you know one of those interesting parts where certainly the i guess i would call it the arrogance of the leader comes through right now, even if that was true of the mountains, the implication is that that somehow would be true of people. And uh, certainly then this organization uh, would only really work if one person can be substituted for another. There's, there's not a sense in which the people who hire this organization don't know that they are actors. Um, you know, it's not a matter of actually fooling people into Correct. thinking that uh, this person really is my departed loved one. And yet there's an implication in the title scene or in the, in the naming scene that somehow or another that this works in one direction, but not the others. You know, the mountains of the Alps can substitute for other people, but, you know no other mountain could substitute for one of the Alps and be sufficient. So the implication would be we could stand in for others, but others couldn't stand in for, for us. I'm not sure if we're not supposed to look at that too closely or if we're supposed to be aware of, of that kind of irony because, you know, whether it's acting skills or disguise skills, what is it about this organization that makes them an adequate substitute for other people's, you know, lives other than their willingness to do it. Yes. And their, their willingness to do it and their willingness to, in a sense, be not the other, not the person they're substituting for, but almost being nothing. There seems that part of their method, and I don't, I don't think I'm giving anything away here, but their, their method is to, not try to copy the other person exactly, but to be a blank slate 
with a few key items, whether it's a few likes or dislikes, a special piece of clothing, a favorite actor, a favorite actor that comes right. up all the time. We um, always used to call those in creative writing an authenticating detail, you know, some little piece of information that in itself is is meaningless, but allows you to be internally consistent to distinguish one person from another. Right. And that's essentially what their their service is. They they don't really try to totally embody the other person, but to provide those authenticating details mm-hmm. that maybe helps the you know the grieving Sus- person. The suspension of disbelief. Right. And yeah, I guess the question in through all of this is is that really helping? Is this really a way to move through grief? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's there's two ways that we can answer that question. One is uh, the film's answer, and you know, then one would be our our own answer. And then you know, the first sort of looks at what does the film say about that, and the second says, you know, what do we say about the film? I think, uh, without moving too far into spoiler territories, I, I I think the film suggests that complications arise that they're trying to do that, but the complications usually arrive at the ways in which the roles that they take on get conflated with their actual selves. Mm -hmm. Um, And it becomes increasingly more difficult to compartmentalize uh, the roles that they play. Several times in there, I thought of the famous line from Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night, where he says, be careful what you pretend to be, because in the end, you become what you pretend to be. (laughs) And Alp seems to... um, uh, take a bunch of people who pretend to be everything and nothing and then lose a sense of who is their core identity apart from the, the roles that they play. Um, but I, it, it does, the film does seem to portray the complications existing in the lives of the actors, not necessarily in the lives of the people who use the services. And so I'm still wrestling with that part in terms of whether that's realistic. That is to say, I think it's realistic that taking on this role would cause some kind of psychic damage to the people who did it uh, Mm -hmm. day after day. But I'm wondering if it really would be helpful for someone in that position and whether or not the film portraying it as being helpful is just unrealistic or that there's some sort of message in there that's that's being implied. Because I don't think it would be very helpful. What What do you think? I had a hard time through the film understanding how what they did was helpful. Okay. You know, and, and watching the interactions, watching what the grieving people were asking of the actors, and I, you know, putting myself in the place of the grieving people, I, I was having a hard time seeing, you know, like if someone close to me had died and I hired these people, would this really? be helping me process anything. Um, I, I would think it would make me more stuck right. than, than helping me move forward because it's just going over and over these little scenes or vignettes. So that's, you know, that, that's my answer to it. Uh, I don't know. It sounds to me like you're having a similar response. Right. Well, I mean, I've lost two people within the last year. You know, one of them who was you know, very close to me and who died at a relatively 
young age. I mean, not an adolescent. One one of the people who dies in the film is the daughter of particular parents. But again, I you know I think what you want in that situation is what I want is for the other person to be alive, um, mm-hmm. that not you know to have one last conversation you know occasionally there's going to be very concrete things that you wish you had done i wish i'd had an opportunity to say goodbye i actually thought of you know famous scene in uh, francis ford coppola's peggy sue got married in which uh, you know it's a time travel movie but you know it talks about that basic human need to have one more conversation you know right and yet, even if that was a bit very basic human need, on one level, it's hard for me to imagine that enacting this in a very psychoanalytic way would meet that particular need because it wouldn't be one last conversation with that particular person. It would be a reminder of what you wanted to say but didn't, uh, unless there's some sort of uh, larger indictment, not of the actors, but of the people who take the actors, that is we delude ourselves or fool ourselves that we are uh, in some way complicit, that, that there's a critique going on, not so much of Alps, the organization, but of the people who, who use Alps and say, um, it's only if you're willing to fool yourself into thinking that this is meaningful or helpful uh, that this organization would exist. And that kind of raises the question, if, it, if, it's, if the film is critiquing in any way the, the users, then and you had used the phrase earlier that whether or not the uh, allegory, you know, the idea of living certain scenes over and over again, I can't help but start thinking about film goers and film watchers ourselves. Yeah, yeah, you know, especially the you know, and and we all do this. We have our favorite films that we purchase on DVD or Blu-ray, and we watch them over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, you know, there is something comforting about, you know, seeing that favorite film time and time again. And you know, I just I start wondering if that isn't part of the critique here as well, then. Yeah, I, I definitely I, I think we're on the same page in terms of, you know, standard trope and certainly postmodern criticism would be uh, the notion of. Not just the voyeur, but the person whose life becomes increasingly virtual, uh, wrapped up in enacted stories and not authentic. And, you know, we can see that theme in commercial films as extensive as The Truman Show or even The Matrix. Uh, right. The implication that the the real world is increasingly an illusion anyway. So how is this any different? This is one more step where we're taking what we do on a consumer mode and just actualizing it. Okay, we're, we're making our own Truman Show. You know, we're making our own Truman Show. So yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's there. I, the other reason why I think that's there, although I haven't gone back and actually looked at the director's first film, uh, certainly descri- I will. Uh, I mean, certainly descriptions of it uh, seem to center around parents who bring up their kids in total isolation. And so there seems to be a lot of that same sort of allegorical, what's real and what's staged, blurring uh, going on in the director's other films that pushes me in that direction towards the interpretation of this one. Mm-hmm. And if we step back a, a, a step or two um, before, I mean, we were talking about the the users, but if we think about the actors themselves and the film certainly does seem to focus on the actors more 
it does put me in mind also of thinking about anyone in the helping professions. That sort of challenge that in being compassionate and helping someone, we pretend and we try to have some sort of professional distancing. But one of the things that this film does is kind of trace when, the, as you said, when there is a conflation of the helper and, or the, you know, the actor and the person. And I also was seeing in the film, in many ways, a non-ironic, a, a very real portrait of, you know, a person in a helping profession who gets too close. Yeah, I think that's there. But I also think it's it's interesting or ironic that traditionally, I think, in this sort of genre of, you know, the staged reality, the illusory reality, you know, mm-hmm. the, the world as illusion, it seems to be to be a given in all of those films that an ugly reality is better than a pretty lie. Uh, or a pretty illusion, you know, going all the way back to Plato's allegory of the cave. You know, the free person is the person who may experience pain by looking at the sun instead of the shadows on the wall. Is still, you know, it's better to be living in the real world rather than the illusionary world. That that's a better state. And the hero is the person who frees the people from the cave, gets them to see the and turn away from the illusion into the real world. You know, you know, in the Matrix, the person who picks to live in the Matrix is the villain. Um, right. Neo's given a choice. Well, you can st- you know you can take whichever pill you want, but he's the hero, and of course he's going to want to see how far down the rabbit hole goes. And once he knows that it's an illusion, can't ever seriously contemplate the question of, well, maybe I would be happier living in the illusion than I would be in, in this ugly real world. You know, the Truman Show culminates with an escape from the the process confines of the show. Um, and yet here, it, it seems like that trope is reversed. Uh, and we get people who are lining up to go back into the matrix, you know, so to speak, or, or actually hiring people to create a matrix for them because uh, they would prefer to live in the illusion rather than, than in the real world. Well, I think that's very, the intentions are very good. I, I think ultimately, without getting into the spoilers for the second half of the film, part of what they're saying is, even if you want to live in the illusionary world, you can't, the, the real world has its way of poking in and making itself known, of reminding you, uh, of imposing itself on, on you, uh, rather than just honoring the imaginary walls that, that you put around it. And one of the interesting things that Alps does with that is really point out the cost. You yeah. Know, you know, who, you know, it isn't the users really that are having difficulties. Um, that they're pretty content. But it's, you know, the actors that we see having to deal with the stress. So in, in a sense, it, the, the people providing the alternate world, the people creating the matrix are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the, of the weight or the cost of, of that lie. Yeah, although I'm, I might argue that the end users, perhaps we don't see some of the problems that are created 
just because the film doesn't focus on them, there's at least one of them, you know, a woman who is blind, who seems to become increasingly dependent on uh, more and more pronounced episodes or interactions. Uh, Ostensibly, this is supposed to be an intermediate service to get you over the hump. Uh, And yet there seems to me to be an indication, at least in her story, that it creates a kind of dependency, you know, a kind of narcotic mm-hmm. or an addictive quality uh, that she then can't go go on without. So um, I, I think there are problems on both ends of the transaction, you know, for both the, the, the actors and the consumers. Well, there is certainly that kind of interesting moment when they are explaining their services to a new client and they're talking about the cost the pricing structure. Yes. And it really has that feel of a drug deal of, well, you know, your first few are free. (laughs) Right. But then it's, you know, however much money per session and, well, you know, we've got to have two, three sessions a week. It's either either drugs or psychology. I don't know which. Um, But it, it really is, there does seem to be something untoward. Well, and they wouldn't be the first who are making an analogous connection between psychology and drugs. No. Psychology, you know, or therapy is kind of the new drug. I've I've never been in therapy, but certainly it's a standard trope in therapy movies of, you know, have I traded one addiction for another, one dependency on another, you know, um, uh, you and I both seen segments from the HBO series in treatment that you know is a really sustained the you know portrayal of psychoanalysis and um, you know there is that sort of sense of which uh, does this cure you of unhealthy relationships or does it create more unhealthy you know <laughs> uh, more unhealthy relationships or dependencies so I, I think that 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 sort of uh, drug language, um, was was very much intended, and you know the, oh, sure. the corollaries or the symbolic connections uh, between the acting service, uh, the psychotherapy, uh, and drugs, um, all as being different kinds of coping mechanisms. And asking, you know, which are any really that different? I think that was certainly intentional. I, I think that's that's a good place to underline. And. You know, that idea of a drug in psychotherapy, we're, we can say it's a, it's a field of study. With drugs, it's obvi- obviously a physical thing. I think one of the interesting, unique things that this film does is changes it into people. We're not using a drug. We're not using a mode of treatment. We're using people. And, and I think as we think about faith and spirituality in film... Um, one of the things that I, w- I found myself being concerned about through the whole film was this notion of treating human beings, other human beings, as objects and using them as such for my own personal gain, which is essentially what they're offering. And, and even even though the actors are offering themselves up freely, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, there is still the cost to them of doing this. Well, so so that language, you know, we've gone from the language of the drug deal to, to the language of prostitution, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is which is another symbolic parallel for what they're doing. We are we are commodifying ourselves 
and and our behavior, and we will become surrogate. You know, usually the term surrogate in our culture, you hear that you assume sexual surrogate uh, or sexual partner, and so in some ways, then you know, the film asks the question of: Is it just the sex, or is it somehow or another, you know, a relational surrogate, an emotional surrogate, uh, standing in for that? Uh, is it wrong because it's sexual or is it wrong because we're objectifying and commodifying human relationships and saying, I will relate to you as another human being for a price. I will uh, take the things that, you know, human nature, human decency, or certainly from some religious point of views, uh, say that I ought to be doing, loving my neighbor and reaching out for you uh, and repackaging them as, as a service. Um, and not even dealing with the person as me the human being but repackaging it into your loved one who is now gone yeah yeah so it's not even dealing with just another human trying to help you through the grieving process right it's this imaginary person now mm -hmm. yeah i will be whoever you know not just i will be there for you for a price um in the psychoanalytic symbolism mode but back to the the prostitution metaphor i'll be whoever you want me to be right you know uh for a price um you know i will subsume my own identity into whatever you need me to be because i am my brand i am my own you know commodity so i hear us saying that this film is raising lots of questions yeah yeah and, and I think definitely for you know shout out for our AFI listeners gonna be playing in uh, first week of November it definitely worth going the, the reviews that we've seen online have been mixed seen some people who were down on it after it played in Venice or you know at one of the BFI film festivals I, I will say that it seems like the majority of the early reviews that I see that have been negative, uh, were from people who saw the first film, Dogtooth, and really liked it, and you know have sort of said, "Well, my expectations were sky high based on this film, and this one seems to be a little bit of a disappointment." So I can't speak to that because I haven't seen the first film. I, I went in pretty much without any expectations at all, other than it had been accepted to the film festival. So you know, I figured it was vetted by festival curator or festival jury. Sure. I found it to be engaging and entertaining, and I would definitely recommend AFI viewers to go. How about you? Uh, absolutely. I, I was intrigued by the premise. Um, the only expectations I had going in were some marketing speak. Um, but I've, I found the story to be really um, engaging. And you know, when I say the film's asking lots of questions, for me, that's a great thing. Yes. Um, I found myself thinking about it for days afterwards, wondering what this meant, uh, looking forward to our podcast so we could talk about it. Um, so Even just on a very basic primal level of making me ask the question of would I use the, you know, if this service actually existed, would I use it? Why? Why not? Exactly. Well, to me, that's a success for, you know, for a film because... Uh, it made you ask yourself a question and, and actually think about the answer rather than just so many films today, particularly mass market films, will just tell you what to think or tell you what to feel. You yeah. know? And, and I really did appreciate that about this film, that it, it didn't tell me what the answer was. So, well, great. 
We thank you for listening to The Thin Place, especially our friends from AFI. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com and leave us a comment. Or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield or at his blog, onemorefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!